Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. You guys are too kind. Um, thanks. I mean it. Uh, it honestly, I, when I said earlier, I, I, I do consider a real privilege and honor to be able to be part of this church. Um, uh, every time we do, like I said, baptisms or, you know, I, I've been doing this, like I said, for a long time. People sometimes ask me, do you get tired of, like, teaching and pastoring and doing this? And, like, to be honest with you, no, I don't. I love it. I love... I mean, like, teaching under an hour is challenging for me. And I appreciate the fact that you guys actually, like, endure with that and don't complain, like, oh, my gosh, it's longer than 20 minutes. I'm tired of this. Um, I appreciate that. I really appreciate just your guys' heart and devotion, like I said, to Jesus and growing and wanting to set a, a high standard on what it looks like to live for Jesus and to follow God and be part of his mission here uh, on the Central Coast, but then globally. And um, so it's, it's awesome. And I realize that so many of you guys are in different stages and levels of your journey in understanding uh, what Christianity is all about or the gospel. Some of you guys aren't Christians. I'm glad you guys are here. You guys are learning. You're growing. I know that there's a lot of you guys that aren't Christians. I talk to, you know, and I realize also some of you might be brand new Christians and you're trying to figure out what it looks like in the journey. Some of you guys have been Christians for a long time. And it, to me, it's, it's a joy. It's awesome to be able to be part of a fellowship where uh, people can come here, uh, whatever stage they're at, and basically be a part of, feel like they're welcomed into and loved by uh, this family. So I appreciate you guys. Thanks for, uh, you know, allowing me to be able to do what I do. And uh, let's do a little bit more of that. So why don't we uh, open up to the book of Jonah, nice little segue, and uh, let you guys into what we've been doing. Um, over the past several uh, weeks, we've been going through the book of Jonah. Uh, we're about four weeks into it right now. It's actually about the fifth week that we're going to be looking at this, and we'll be in the book of Jonah for a few more weeks. And then once we're done with Jonah, this will take us to the very beginning part of uh, summer. And, um, and then once we're done with Jonah, we're going to get into the book of Colossians, and Colossians will take us to sort of the... Uh, the, uh, the beginning part of the fall, and then uh, we'll let, be letting you guys know what we'll be doing in the fall in a little bit. But that's kind of what we're going to be looking at over the summer. So if you guys will be here over the summer, it uh, gives you a little bit of a highlight as to what we'll be doing. I'm excited about that. Hopefully you guys are as well. Uh, but Jonah chapter 3 is where we're at today, where we find ourselves. Uh, what I want to do is I want to read uh, just the first five verses of chapter 3, and um, then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work taking a look at sort of the subject matter of what's happening with Jonah and his uh, mission that God has called him to, to this great city of Nineveh, and to proclaim against it. So, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, let's read, follow along, we'll pray, we'll get to work. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh then believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Let's pray. God, we ask you right now that you would open up our eyes, open up our hearts, help us understand, God, what it is that you have to speak to us. Lord, we realize that it's in your heart to bring about change and transformation in areas that are broken. And obviously, Nineveh was broken. And yet, you wanted to redeem it. You wanted to restore it. And God, obviously, you used a broken man to do it. Jonah was broken. And so, God, I pray that you would open our eyes and help us to see how 
You went about using a broken man to bring about radical transformation and change. So, Father, we just pray that you would uh, let your spirit begin to work in our hearts and shine upon areas in our lives that need to be uh, confronted, need to be challenged, need to be brought into light or alignment with your presence, God, so that we can be made right, so that we can be part of the mission that you are seeking to bring about. Jesus, be glorified in our time right now, we pray, and we ask all these things in, in your name. Amen. One of the things I want to kind of start off with is, as we just read in the passage, we see that there's this radical transformation in Jonah chapter 3. And it kind of got me thinking about really sort of on a bigger, broader level in terms of humanity. And what I've kind of realized with regard to the bigger picture of humanity, all of us, to some degree, we want to change things. We want transformation. In other words, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we realize that there are areas in our lives personally that we're just simply not satisfied with. Areas about who we are, the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that we interact with other people. We're not satisfied with that. So we realize that there are areas of needed change inside of us. Uh, So we try to devote ourselves to self-help or self uh, transformative type of ways. You know, if you go into a bookstore, you realize that one of the largest areas in any uh, bookstore is going to be like the self-help section. There's lots of books to kind of find or discover on uh, self-help and things that we sort of employ to change ourselves. Uh, and the reason for that, the reason why that's such a big issue in today's world, because we realize there are areas about us that are broken and we want to fix them. Uh, so we see that on a personal level. We see that on a social level. Where we realize that relationships oftentimes are not what they should be. And so we try to change them. Um, Sometimes we try to bring about change in relationships by uh, either just fleeing from a relationship that's broken, right? I mean, oftentimes we realize that to actually go the alternative route, which is uh, forgiveness, which is reconciliation, which is uh, confession of sin. Uh, That's really challenging, really difficult. So it's rather than going to that hard place of confession of sin or absorption of guilt or uh, asking forgiveness, humbling ourselves, we would rather just sort of walk away from that and then go find a new set of friends, maybe find a new church, maybe find a new spouse, somebody that might we might get along with a little bit on a, on a better level in terms of a social area. But we realize that at some point things are broken socially, so we want to try to fix them. And uh, again, so the point or the premise that I want to make is that there are areas that we realize are broken or dysfunctional and we want to somehow fix them. Uh, another area that we can look at this is sort of environmental. Uh, we realize that there's a lot of talk today about needing to fix ecology or fix the world in which we live in in terms of environmentally. It's one of the reasons why there's been so much of an emphasis upon dealing with pollution or recycling or other means uh, that can somehow bring about destruction to the environment. Because we realize, uh, or at least scientifically, there's a lot of investigation going into this that are kind of demonstrating that there are areas that are being broken and uh, destroyed by toxins and so on and so forth. So there's areas in which you're trying to change or transform that. Uh, Politically, um, it seems as if any type of revolution you've ever heard about has always basically been along the same theme. The theme basically goes something like this. The government's broken, but our government, meaning our party, our representatives, or the people that we're representing, uh, we will change it because we have the solution, we have the answer. Every revolution operates on that premise. Uh, Every revolution that's happening in the world currently is operating along that same premise. That some political group, some, you know, new nation or something that will rise up and say, we have the solution. We will bring transformation. We will change. 
we will make life a little bit better. Because again, like I said, the main premise is, is that the way that the government's been running uh, previous is dysfunctional. It's broken. It's hazardous. It's lethal. It's not uh, bringing blessing. It's bringing oppression to people. So therefore, we need a new government. So we see that not only polit- uh, personally, socially, environmentally, politically. Uh, these are all areas in which we realize that there is hope for a new world. Another way which we can see this is sort of is in the area of information or financial where, you know, if finances could be better, then it would bring about better change. Or if information was made more accessible, more available, or um, education was made more available, then we would have a better society or better culture. Uh, it's interesting by which the level amount of uh, uh, confidence or trust the public oftentimes will place upon these areas. Upon these things. For example, I was reading an article recently by a guy by the name of uh, Peter Hershenberg. Uh, he was a well-known kind of a uh, technological mogul and had a lot of investment and involvement with lots of companies like Google, Yahoo, Apple. Listen to what he said with regard to technology. It's really interesting the phrases in which he uses to describe this. Here's what he says. The tech world is best understood as a messianic movement. Do you hear that? He's actually using religious language to describe the tech world. Um, not too many people are this honest, but here's what he says. The tech world is best understood as a messianic movement. We promise something great, we evangelize it, and then we're going to ultimately end up changing the world. Uh, in other words, what he actually does is he adopts sort of religious language and he says, here, technology is like a religious movement. Like but in, in, instead of a personalized Messiah, it's sort of this impersonal force that if we evangelize it, we proclaim it, we preach it, we advertise it. You know, it's just a, that's a fancy way of basically saying uh, we will market it uh, to the masses. And once they believe it, then we will basically bring about change and transformation. And, and why is that? Because we realize that uh, living in a world where we're not connected uh, doesn't work. Uh, we've sort of had these glimpses into a connected world by way of things like Facebook and other forms of social networking. So we realize we, we have sort of this idea that we can change the world, we can make it a better place uh, by simply um, enabling or enacting various forms of technology. So here's my point that I want to make and the premise I really want to stem from and why this sort of ties into the passage uh, I'll, I'll say in just a moment here. Uh, but the reality is, is that all of us we realize that something in our world, something in our lives needs to change. Um, all of us, if you're really honest with yourselves, we realize that if there are areas in your life personally, areas in your social life, uh, areas in your political life, areas in your financial life, areas in your technological life, areas in your social life, any other area, if you had the power to change it, you would. And actually the way society works is we reward people that step up and do something about it. We sort of mock and uh, not so much like people that don't do anything about it. So in other words, let me put it this way. We do not reward apathetic people, right? So if you're somebody that's been going through, you know, Cal Poly for 10 years and you're not getting your doctorate, right? I mean, like $100,000 in debt and you're like, how many years have you been in Poly? Uh, 11. Is there any hope of graduation? No. Like nobody looks at that and they're like, you know what? That's awesome. Like, you're so smart. Like, that's amazing. You're genius. No, people look at that and they make movies about that, poking fun of that. All right? Probably have Chris Farley in it or something like that. And it makes a great movie to laugh at. But the point of the matter is, is that we don't really reward apathy. 
We love it when people see something that's wrong and end up doing something about the wrongness. Meaning, they're going about some form of process to fix that which is broken. The problem is, is that even though all of us would agree that there are areas in our lives, areas in our lives personally, areas in this world that should be changed, could be changed, we also realize that the number one reason why we are not doing anything about it is because we lack the means, or the abilities to do so, right? In other words, the reason why we aren't getting more physically in shape is not so much an issue of, like, desire. Some of us, like, want that. Uh, Maybe we might say, well, it's just time. I'm too busy. I have too much stuff going on. The reason why we're not more active, involved, and serving in church is because maybe it might just simply be we have other reasons or excuses. But the point of the matter is it's not so much that we don't have the desires. Oftentimes that we don't have the abilities, the real strength, the power, the empowerment to be able to do it. And the reason why this sort of plays in the text is because what we see in the life of Jonah chapter 3 is that God brings about radical transformation and change into one of the most leading cities in the entire world in an instant. And the way this change happens is not by, uh, you know, financial ruin. It's not by an opposing army. It's not by swords and a gunfight or you know, people's throats being slit. It's by one man being faithful to God, going into a city, doing what God asked him to do. And all of a sudden, hearts are changed. So in other words, what I see kind of in the story here is that God actually brings about change and transforms an entire city, which ultimately has transformed an entire nation by one man. I mean, this is amazing when you take a look at sort of the anatomy of this and begin to unpack this and understand this. We're told in a story of the book of Jonah that Nineveh was sort of this metropolis. It was a massively large city. It was the center of an empire that was called the Assyrian Empire. Uh, If you've studied history before, you realize that there were several major world empires. Assyria was one of those major world empires. And it was so extensive and so large uh, that basically there's been a lot of uh, historical research and geography done about it to discover to rediscover, to kind of find out a lot of artifacts and understand the culture as it was. But they've discovered that it's a very, very large, extensive culture. And the center of that culture and civilization was its capital, which we know is called Nineveh. And it's to this particular city that God actually sent uh, a representative, his representative, to speak forth to the city. Now, why would God send a representative or an agent into this great city of Nineveh? Well, we're told why at the very end of the book. It's because God says, I actually care about those people in that city. They're blind. They're lost. They're broken. Their world, the way they govern themselves, the way they govern their resources, the way they take care of the world, the way that they treat other people is broken. And they're destroying themselves. And God looks at it and says, it's a great city. And I want to change them. I want to transform them. And this can only be because God loves the Ninevites. Now we realize, we'll get into this more in just a second here, but the problem was, was that Jonah actually hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians. Jonah had these issues with the Assyrians that he did not want to follow God to do what God wanted him to do. So Jonah, obviously in the story that we've already read, that he's fled. He ran away from God. He tried to get away as far away from God as he possibly could because he did not want to see God uh, redeem, restore bring into the family uh, these pagan people that Jonah particularly hated. Didn't want to see this happen. But 
what was driving the whole book was the fact that God truly wanted to bring about change. Now, what I want to begin to really take a look at here is I see this in the book, in the story, and particularly chapter 3. Uh, there's two questions that I really want to just lead into today, and then we're done. The first question I really want to unpack is this. What is needed to change the world? So I want to really try to understand what was needed, uh, especially, and there's a lot of ways in which you can answer that. Um, I'm going to try to answer that as closely as I can just by simply looking at the text. Because, like I said, you can answer that question in a, in a lot of superficial ways. Now, again, I want to make a distinction between uh, true, lasting, eternal change and distinguish that from superficial change. And what I mean by superficial change is anything that does not last forever. Uh, let me give you an example. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll choose like Facebook. Facebook brought about, nobody would argue that Facebook has radically changed the world. Right? Our, our lives today have been changed by Facebook in some way, shape, or form. There's, no one would argue that. But here's my question. Will Facebook be the face 50 years from now? Will it be around? Will it be the main thing? Probably not. I mean, if you study history, you know anything about history, tech history, you know that probably will not. It won't be the leading thing. Something else will probably arise and take it over some other way by which we'll communicate and socially network and so on and so forth. But the point of the matter is, is I would say that as powerful and as deep, far and wide as Facebook has had impact upon our culture and society, it's merely superficial. In other words, it's deeper than other superficial things, but it's still superficial. In other words, it has a shelf life on it. At some point, it will expire. Something else will replace it. What I'm saying, and I want to really try to boil this down and understand this. How do we bring about true change that's eternal, that lasts forever? Because this is what the type of change that God is always working into the entire process. If I can put it this way, God wants to change us. He wants to transform and change our, our culture, our society, not in superficial ways, but in ways that will last forever. I'll give you an example of this. I was talking with a friend of mine uh, a couple days ago, and he lives in Hungary. In fact, uh, he'll actually be teaching next week. You guys have the great privilege and joy of being able to hear from my good friend, Balaj. Uh, he's a pastor in Hungary. He's here today, and now he actually is at first service, I think. And uh, he'll be sharing next week. But one of the things that he was sharing with me a couple days ago is that he leads a Bible study, and in his Bible study, there's a lot of youth there, and a lot of youth have come to know Jesus. But in his Bible study, uh, he's got a bunch of uh, kids, and I guess in Hungary, there's a huge problem with sort of a neo-Nazi party. And they uh, bring in a lot of, like, younger kids. So a lot of these kids from a very young age are sort of basically trained in sort of neo-Nazism, which is basically another way of saying, you know, white um, nationalism. Like, looking for people, loving people that share the same national identity as other Hungarians. So anybody else who is a non-Hungarian uh, is basically on the outer circle, or in other words, uh, subject or an object of spite and despite. And so what he was saying is that in this Bible study, he's got neo-Nazis and gypsies. And if you know anything about gypsy culture, you realize that they're basically, they were hated by Nazis and neo-Nazis. But in his Bible study, he's got both. They worship God side by side. There's no distinction. There's no like, this is the gypsy section, this is the neo-Nazi section. They're one. How do you, how do you get that? Where, where in this world do you see two uh, normally opposing parties come together in one? The answer, in God's new work of redemption. In other words, God took something that was broken in this world, fused it, uh, brought it together, and breathed life into it, 
And now it stands as a testimony of God's not supernatural or not, not superficial changing, but supernatural transformation. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Supernatural as opposed to superficial. So let's begin to dive into this a little bit. So first of all, we'll take a look at the question in terms of what is needed to change our world. Second question, we'll take a look at what is needed for you to be a world changer. So let's first deal with first things first, which is what is needed to change the world? So the first answer, obviously, I think that comes up very clearly here in the passage that we just read is just simply God. Like we need God. And the reality is, is that any form of change that's ever happened, I would even go so far as to say that any change, good, positive change that's ever happened in this world, uh, whether maybe even superficial, meaning like the formation of Facebook or other forms of social networking or other forms of technology advancement or thinking or uh, medical science or things of this nature. Uh, all of these things are fueled by God. God is the reason for all of them. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody that has been part of the process of forming technology or advancing medical sciences and so on and so forth, like we're cognitively praising God for like, oh God, thank you for the cancer treatment that you just showed me and I'm going to praise your name forever over this. That doesn't necessarily mean that was happening. But at the end of the day, it was God that gave them the brain to think. It was God that somehow matched their lungs simultaneously with oxygen. It just so happened to be in the environment. It was God that gave them the ability to somehow work all of their energy and thinking and technology into one moment where they were able to come up with certain answers and solutions. God was the source and is the source of everything that happens in our lives. All the good, it literally, God is the source of it all. So, so the point that I want to basically lean into is this, is that any form of change that ever happens in this world really comes from God. But I really don't want to spend a lot of time looking at superficial stuff. I want to look at supernatural change and transformation. So first of all, again, we have to understand a little bit something about God. And I think God has revealed to us in at least three different ways here in the passage. The first way in which I see God revealed uh, that we need is we see God is clearly described or seen as gracious. In Jonah chapter 3 verse 1, take a look at the passage again. It says this. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. So did you catch that? God comes to Jonah a second time. Why? Well, because the first time God came to Jonah, Jonah went AWOL. I mean, the first time God came to Jonah, Jonah basically said no. The first time God came to Jonah, Jonah basically left, went rogue. He went and did his own thing, lived his own way. In other words, self-will in Jonah booted, shoved out, pushed to the margin God's will. So what we see in chapter 3 is God basically comes back to Jonah. And in a lot of ways, we'll come back to this in a moment, but this doesn't make a lot of sense, to be really honest, on a, on, on a, on a surface level. Why would God go to Jonah? Like I said, we'll answer that in a moment. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the point of the matter is, is that God comes to Jonah a second time. Look, the reality is we've got to find a lot of hope in this. Because how many times are we like Jonah? We fail. We're faithless. In other words, we exert over and over and over again our own self-will to the neglect of, to the pushing of the margins of God's will. In other words, we don't do oftentimes what God intends for us to do. We don't live with a heart that's always asking God, what's your plan in my life for this moment? 
what will bring you the greatest honor, greatest glory. Oftentimes what we're doing is we're basically saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want, how I want. And we're basically pushing God off to the margins. But what we see put on really clear display in chapter 3, verse 1, is that God comes to Jonah a second time. And you can read that a third time, fourth time, fifth time. In other words, God just comes back. It's this repeating grace, this repeating theme throughout the scripture that God comes back over and over and over again. Because that's just his character. It's gracious. You and I, we can sleep on that. He doesn't just simply write us off. I mean, to be really honest with you, if I was God and I was working with a rogue agent like Jonah, I would not in any way call his help at all. I'd go find somebody else, somebody better, somebody that's, you know, better trained, uh, maybe a little bit more submissive, uh, somebody that has better credit, you know, credentials. Not Jonah. I would never go to Jonah again, especially to the degree that Jonah basically uh, ran from God. It wasn't like Jonah was just like, no, Lord. Not, but Jonah ran from God. On several different occasions, he ran from God. And yet God pursued him. This is amazing when you consider this. Because the reality, like I said, you and I, we are oftentimes like Jonah. Yet God pursues, lovingly pursues us. Because he's gracious. Second thing that I see is that God's dynamic. And what I mean by this is the opposite. Is the opposite might be uh, better identify this. Is that he's not static. Meaning that God doesn't just simply stand still. He's not just simply uh, doing nothing. Uh, the Bible describes God as resting. But the reality is, is that even while he's resting, in other words, he is still active in our lives. He's, he's not static. He's dynamic. He's fluid. There's always movement. And this should actually give us a lot of hope. Because, in other words, this whole universe, this whole, our lives, history is actually going somewhere. There's movement. Everything is heading towards something. And we know, this is one of the beautiful things about our Bibles, so you can actually read the last chapter and know where things are going there, going towards. In other words, if you want to think of it this way, the end of the book describes, portrays a picture of heaven overlapping with earth. And that's kind of another way of basically saying that in this world, which is filled with pain and shame and brokenness and hurt and tears, when heaven and earth finally overlap, finally come together, there will be no more tears, no more shame, no more pain, no more hurt, no more sorrows. Isaiah prophesies of a time that basically, rather than investing money towards military might, it says they will actually uh, turn their plowshares, uh, in other words, their swords and things that they were using to fight, into pruning hooks, into plowshares. In other words, rather than investing in sort of a culture of war and of military might, there will be investment in terms of agriculture and peace and blessing for the nations. That, In other words, this is where history is going, that God is bringing order out of the chaos that we see around us. God is moving. God is doing this. And when we pray, things like, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like Jesus taught us to pray. What we're really basically saying is, God, give us a glimpse now. Let us have a trailer now of what it will be like then. So we pray for people that are sick. Someone that has disorder within their body that leads to cancer, that leads to some sort of 
physical issues. When we pray for people like that, we're basically praying, God, give us a trailer. Let this body somehow miraculously heal this body. So this body will be a trailer of what's to come. A glimpse, a picture of what's to come. When we pray for God to heal, to reconcile relationships, whether it be marriages or relationships within a family that were once broken and dysfunctional and people divorced and walked away from each other out of spite and anger. We pray for reconciliation. What we're basically asking God to do is, God, in the ages to come, where all things will be come together, be aligned underneath the headship of King Jesus, would you bring that now into this scenario today so we can catch a glimpse of where, where you're going, what you're going to do. Let it happen now. It's really what it's all about. That's what we're praying for. It's why we encourage people. Pray for people that are sick. Pray for people that they need to forgive and they need to reconcile. Pray that God would do this because God wants to do that. He's eager to do that. And he ultimately will do that because we know that God is dynamic. We know that God is dynamic. One of my favorite lines, I've said this many times before in the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia or the books, um, is that little passage where it says, you know, in that moment where everyone's kind of like freaking out, trying to figure out what's going on, it says like, you know, Aslan is on the move. I love that, like, just line because it's, it's, it's almost like basically saying God's on the move. He's not static. He's not standing still. He's always working to bring about a sense of new creation. Sense of new creation. This is what God's doing. So we see that very clearly, uh, not only throughout the entire book of Jonah. Because again, really, this is the theme of the whole book of Jonah. Like, why would God even care about Nineveh? Because he loves Nineveh. He loves the people. He sees them in their sin. He sees them in their sorrow and their brokenness. He sees them in their disorder. And he wants to bring about his shalom. This is what God's doing. This is why God cares, because he's always moving in a very dynamic way. The third thing that we see is that not only is God gracious, first of all. Second, God is dynamic. Third thing we see is that God is strategic. Here's what's amazing to me about the story, is that God, again, comes to Jonah, calls Jonah, gives Jonah the second chance. And we're told in verse 3, it says this. So Jonah rose, he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was exceedingly a great city. It was three days in journey and breadth. Uh, a lot of scholars have tried to figure out exactly what that means. Uh, some have thought, well, maybe there's a wall around the entire city that it takes you three days to basically walk around it. If that was true, that would be a very, very large uh, wall. Others have said that basically the city of uh, Nineveh was so large, it basically takes three days to adequately, sufficiently really uh, to see it, to, to indulge in all that it uh, has to, uh, to, to give. Uh, others have said that, you know, just to walk through it takes three days journey. Uh, we don't know exactly what it means, but if, if, for example, it means uh, three days to walk through the entire city, Jonah went one-third into the city. Because we're told that he basically walked in to the city. Uh, and it says um, he went one day, one day's journey into the city. Jonah began to go into the city, a uh, day's journey, and then he called out. He says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So what I see with Jonah here is that Jonah basically is just giving the bare bones minimum. I mean... You know, if some of you are like, gosh, I don't really sense a lot of like love or compassion or concern in Jonah's voice. I think you're probably right on. All right. I don't sense a lot of like overwhelming, like compassion in Jonah's voice. Like, oh, I just love these Ninevites too. Just like God loves these Ninevites. I kind of sense with Jonah sort of this mentality of like, God wants me to go preach a message. I'll go preach a message. But that's all that I'm going to do. I'm not going to feel it. 
I'm just going to deliver it, and then I'll, I'll bail. That's it. And he goes, you know, he doesn't even go into the very heart of it. He doesn't even go halfway in the city. He just goes a third in the city. He's just like, I'll go, and I'll shout at people, yell at people, and then I'll leave, and I'll just wait for God's judgment to come upon them. And at the very end of the day, the exact opposite happened. Because Nineveh repents, turns back uh, to God. God forgives them. And again, like I referred to earlier, that the city is radically changed. But in a lot of ways, it sort of raised the question for me as I was studying this. Then why would God choose Jonah to be the voice for Nineveh? I mean, again, like I already referred to earlier, like Jonah has already failed to basically invest in the same failure twice, three times, whatever, um, is, is pretty much a sure bet of perhaps potential failure again. Again, even though Jonah went, I don't think his heart was in it. I don't think he demonstrated the kindness, the affection of God's heart. In fact, we know that. I, don't, I think because of the first few verses of chapter 4, when God basically says, I've forgiven them, Jonah's actually mad at God now. He's very disappointed with God. He's upset because God has actually forgiven them. So, so even though Jonah is a spokesman for God, he's representing what God says. He certainly doesn't represent who God is. So again, it kind of raises this question, why Jonah to go on this mission in Nineveh? Now, the reality is, as we look at this, Nineveh in some ways needed Jonah or a Jonah, needed a spokesman. Um, it needed Jonah, really in a lot of ways, I would even say, as much as Jonah needed Nineveh. Nineveh needed Jonah as much as Jonah needed Nineveh. Let me explain that. Because God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to basically to confront and to challenge the idolatry of the Ninevites' hearts. But God, at the same time, used Nineveh to confront and challenge the idolatry of Jonah's heart. I said this from the very beginning. This, to me, is the interesting irony of the whole story. Is that God actually selects and chooses a dysfunctional, broken, messed up, idolatrous, nationalistic, but totally squeaky, clean, Republican, right-wing, Bible-preaching, fundamentalist, King James-only Christian preacher to go do what God wanted him to do. In other words, on the outward appearance of Jonah, everything about him screamed right-wing, fundamentalist, Bible-believing Christian. But everything in Jonah's heart says he was just as a slave to idols as the Ninevites. And the only thing I conclude, conclude in as to why God selected Jonah was because, as I said earlier, that as much as Nineveh needed Jonah or a Jonah, Jonah needed Nineveh. In other words, Nineveh happened to be God's strategy to confront the idolatry of Jonah's heart. From the beginning, I've said that the irony of the story of Jonah is that even though he was a prophet, even though he was Jewish, even though he was part of a tribe of people that were hand-selected by God, the Jewish nation, Jonah, at the end of the day, was prideful, proud of his nationalism. In other words, Jonah was just as prideful in terms of his nationalism uh, as, as anybody that would be pride, prideful of their own country and be willing to fight and kill over that. And when God basically told Jonah, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go preach 
my message to these Ninevite people, Jonah immediately knew what that meant. It meant that God was going to rescue them, or that God intended to rescue them. He didn't know the outcome. But he did know that if Nineveh repented, then God would forgive them. God would wash them. God would cleanse them. God would invite them, and he would welcome them to the table. And that was deeply troubling to Jonah, so much so to the point where basically it would be equivalent to Jonah, in essence, saying, I'll still believe in God, but I won't go to church anymore. I won't be part of this community anymore. I will run as far away and as fast as I can away from God. Because I do not want to be a part of this process of welcoming in my enemies. And this kind of puts a finger upon issues that you and I have to deal with in our own hearts. It would be like God coming to us and saying... You enjoy the salvation I give you? You enjoy the salvation that I'm working out, bringing about in your life? And we're like, yes, I love it. I love being washed. I love singing praises to you because I'm clean. I love all the benefits that come from salvation. And if God's kind of leading you on in a sense and says, you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to one of these days transform this whole world. It's going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And all the evildoers will be cast out and it will be one big heaven. And we're in our minds, we're like, yes, I love that. That's awesome. You know, God's like, you know, not only that, but I'm going to rescue your family that you haven't talked to for a long time. And you're like, yes, I want my family to come to know Jesus, but I've always been afraid to share with them about Jesus. God's like, I'm going to save your friends that you've been too, you know, a little bit fearful to share with them about Jesus. I'm going to save them. They're going to be there with you. And you're like, yes. And then God's like, you know what? You know who else I'm going to do? And all of us are like getting excited, like, yes, God's going to do great things. And God's like, you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to save and rescue and ransom your ex-boyfriend, the one that abused you. And your dad, the one that wasn't there for you, provided for you financially, but was never there emotionally for you. The one that always challenged you, picked on you, and made fun of you, and was not a good dad to you. Oh, and by the way, your ex-husband, your ex-wife, your ex-spouse, those people that bullied you when you were in sixth grade, all of them, I'm going to rescue, and I'm going to save, and they're going to be part of the family. And now we're struck with this reality of like, oh, I was really stoked in this message of salvation until we got to talking about my enemies. And God basically could say, as he did say to Jonah, by the way, you're going to be the messenger that's going to deliver this message to them. That's the story of Jonah. Like, what are we going to do now? Because we can bask in the glory of like salvation. Yes, it's wonderful. And then God says, you know what? It's so wonderful. I want it to not just simply shine upon you. I want it to penetrate through you out to even those whom you hate and despise. And your heart has been set against for so long for maybe even good reasons. But my love, my grace, my compassion, my kindness, my mercy is so great, so powerful, it will be extended even to those. And some of us, I think we're really honest, we struggle with that. We really struggle with that. But see, here's the thing. Why did God choose Jonah to do this? The only thing I can come up with is because this was God's strategy. That this was the means that God would use in Jonah's life as an instrument of his choice to sanctify Jonah. Um, when I first got saved, I was just about 16 years old. I had a high school pastor. And I remember... Him saying something one time, and I never forgot. And he 
was talking about him because, you know, as a young Christian, I was like in awe of, you know, my high school pastor. I'm like, that guy's amazing. He's, the reason why he's probably a pastor because he's just awesome. You know, he's like the most holy, righteous dude. And then I got to know him and I realized he, he really wasn't that. And, um, you know, there's oftentimes that kind of sense of disillusionment that sets in. And, you know, I, I, I tell people that oftentimes, like, there's a tendency for us to look at people in ministry or, you know, leaders or whatever. And like, oh, my gosh, they're probably there because they're the most sanctified, holy, God-fearing, God-loving people I've ever met. And then you get to know them. And then you're like, oh, they're just like me. And you're like let down. And the problem is because you had this tendency to sort of idolize them. And that's, that's not good. But here's, here's what he used to say. He used to describe that the reason why he was a pastor and in the ministry and doing what he was doing is because that was God's instrument. It was the greatest instrument that God had brought about into his life for him to sanctify him. To bring about his sanctification. To bring about his transformation and holiness. To put it another way, ministry for him, being a pastor for him, was the anvil upon which God was going to hammer out his glory, his picture, his image in his life. It was the place that he was going to be confronted by his own idolatry. It was the setting, the arena by which he was going to have to deal with his own insecurities. It was the place by which he was going to discover where he was trusting other than God. In the same way, why did God choose Jonah? Because he could have chosen a lot of other better prophets. Because God knew that Jonah needed Nineveh to be the instrument by which it was going to confront the idolatry of his own heart. And I would suggest to you that for every one of us, we have something like that in our lives. There's something like that inside of us in our lives that we're dealing with, that for some reason we would look at it and say, we hate this, it's painful, it's challenging, it confronts me, it leaves me feeling always uneasy. And we always want to run away from it, just like Jonah wanted to run away from it. But what if, what if that thing that's extremely painful and challenging and hard and difficult and confrontative to who you are as a human being, what if that is actually the means by which God wants to use, intends to use, to hammer away everything that's unlike Jesus in your life. See, here's the thing. We always run from those things. And oftentimes, because the obvious, it's painful. It's always painful. It's always painful. So here's the reality. If you can use a New Testament metaphor, it'd be like Jesus saying, unless you repent, take up your cross follow me, you can't be my disciple. And that's Jesus' way of saying, yes, salvation is free. But in this life, there are, there's a cross for you to carry. There are things that are going to be challenging for you. There are going to be things in your life that are going to feel like they're leaching blood from your very being. They're going to feel painful. They're going to feel as if you are dying on that thing, that cross. And the reality is, in a sense, That's exactly and precisely what's happening. The old life is being crucified. In other words, if you were to put it this way, it's like taking a kernel of life and separating the husk from it. Jesus uses these circumstances in our lives. God used Nineveh and Jonah's life to separate the husk, to confront the idolatry, to deal with the issues of sin that were resident inside of his heart. It was God's strategy. God was using it. So we need to think about 
oftentimes how we find ourselves in circumstances like that and how God is using them in our lives. Which leads me to the second thing with regard to how God and what God uses really to change this world. First of all, like I said, we need God. Second thing that we need is you need an agent. And here in this particular sense, we see God calling Jonah. God uses Jonah as the agent to bring about his message to the Ninevites. In other words, God always tends to choose human agency to get his work done. It's easy oftentimes for people to kind of be like, great, I'm a Christian now, or things need to get done. I wonder who's going to do it. Let's just pray and have God do it. That's important. Pray. Spend time praying. Invest some time praying that God would do things. Invest and pray that God would, you've got kids. Pray that God would meet your kids. If you're involved in the church, pray that God would do great things in the church. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up people for the harvest. But at the end of the day, the question really has to come back to, how is God going to do great things? And the answer is always the same through agents. God uses people. So, for example, I say this to men all the time. Look, as a dad, you can sit around all day long and be like, I wonder how God's going to you know, save my kids or tell them about Jesus. You. You're the agent. They're going to know about Jesus because you will sit down with them, open your mouth, and begin to pour into them, pray over them, love them, share the gospel to them, figure out ways strategically whereby you can be that instrument. You are the agent. You can't just sit around and pray that God would bring someone in there to do it. God has already done that. He's already brought somebody. It's called the dad. It is your job to think about that, how God wants to bring that about into your life, that you can strategically be a part of that move of bringing Jesus into your family. The important thing is, is that we can sit around and think about how is God going to do certain things in the church? That God looks for agents to do. I was just talking with the guy, uh, his name's Eric Bates. He's been doing the coffee for the past several months. Great guy. I love the guy. He's, guy's taking him away. He's going to be moving. And one of the things I was just encouraging him with is thinking about, is I says, look, what, I, what I'm so encouraged about by you and what you've done is that you saw a need in the church that people like drinking coffee. And he asked me, you know, months ago, can I provide a service of providing and serving and helping people drink coffee? I'm like, I like coffee. That sounds like it's the Holy Spirit speaking in your heart. Yes. <laughs> God likes coffee. I like coffee. We all love coffee. It's definitely the movement of the Holy Spirit. So, yes. And, but the thing I was to- telling him was that the reality is that you listen to God. You were the agent that God used. Now that he's moving, he's got a team of people that are going to help keep the thing going on. And the thing I was telling him is that, look, there are all sorts of needs throughout the church. Need for more time. People invest time. Need for more people to invest money. Some of you have more time than you have money. So you can invest time. Some of you have more money than you have time. But the way that God moves and the way that God works is through agents. This is what God did through Jonah. He moved through Jonah as an agent to bring his word to these people. So the final question I really want to tackle, and I'm done, is what is needed really to be a world changer? In other words, for you and I, let's make this practical. How can you and I... Be part of what God is wanting to do in this world. How can you and I be a part of this? How can you and I actually give our energy and spend our time investing in things that are not just simply superficial, but are long-lasting? That are powerful, that last for a long time, that lasts on into eternity. And really, in short, the way that I would answer this is that you've really got to personalize the reality of what I've been talking about. Let me encapsulate it by two verses, and then I'll finish. 
first verses in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul would say this. As he's praying for these people, he says, We thank God when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed is in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing. So here's what Paul's saying. In short, Paul's saying, look, what's happened to you guys is the gospel's come to you. And every time I think about it, I'm always thanking God for you. Because what's happened is as the gospel has come to you, it's impacted, affected you, but it's gone through you and it's changing. It's changing the world. And we'll get more to this when we go through the book of Colossians. But one example, for instance, back in that day, there was a massive separation between people of wealth and people with nothing. In other words, if you had a lot of money, a lot of power, uh, you would never associate ever with anybody that didn't have any money. There'd be no reason for you to. There's, they were of no utility or value whatsoever to you. So you would never involve yourself interacting with somebody who had no uh, reason of helping you out. But in the church of Colossae, what you had were very rich people coming together with very poor people and they were actually loving each other. This wasn't like somehow they were uh, forced into this relationship. So you have rich people like kind of gritting their teeth. Like, I guess I got to love these really poor people. And the poor people being like, I guess I got to endure with the pomp and arrogance of these really rich people. Well, you had in the church where rich people and poor people actually loving each other together. Paul describes that as fruit, change, growth, transformation. Here's what Paul would say and describe the gospel as being. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1. He says this. Now I remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved. So Paul says that this gospel that I preached to you, he says, you've received it, you stand in it, and it's continually transforming you. You are saved by it. And then he goes on and says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and he was raised again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here's what Paul is saying and what I'm saying to you. That if you want to be somebody that brings about transformation or changes, transforms, not in a non-superficial, in a supernatural way, in your life, that change comes by and in measure to the degree that you believe what God has done for you. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, if I can be as practical as I can, the reasons why we refuse to forgive people is because of a failure to trust that God's power to forgive is big enough to extend through us, beyond us, out to them. And we're stuck. We may have experienced it like Jonah personally, but we are failing to believe it for those that we actually despise. It's an issue of distrust. How big is our God? To the measure, to the degree that you see what God has done for you and you believe it and you trust it, your heart will be changed. And by being changed and being transformed, you'll become a part of something so big, so powerful, that's moving. Because it's moving in rhythm with God. Or at least it's intended to be in movement with rhythm with God. That God is bringing about this radical change. Starting now in this life. And will one day fulfill when Jesus comes back again. He invites you into this. And I want to finish with a little quote from C.S. Lewis. Where he talks about his transformation. I'll have the worship team come on up. And why don't you guys just listen to it real quickly. It's sort of a description of his conver- conversion. 
kind of an autobiographical account. He describes a day in which he was on a, on a bus and how all this sort of just kind of happened to him. And, uh, but for months prior to this, he'd been thinking about God and thinking about people that have had uh, investment in his life. But in this moment, while he's on this bus ride, things just sort of came about and he began to realize the power of God and it began to change his heart. In other words, God began to, to move him and convince him in the same way that Jonah was being convinced and urged. Even though Jonah may have had uh, hesitations, hesitations or holdups with regard to his heart in terms of God's grace being expanded to Gentile pagan people that he hated, he definitely knew of the love of God that was demonstrated to him. And this is what we see with C.S. Lewis. And this is what we mean by trusting and believing in the gospel that God gives. So here's what C.S. Lewis says. Before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now appears a moment of holy free choice. Without words, I think, almost without images, a fact about myself somehow was presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shedding something out. Or, if you like, uh, that I was wearing some stiff clothing or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appearance to be momentous, I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say choose, yet I did not really seem, it didn't really seem possible to do the opposite. You could argue that I was not a free agent at that time, but I am more inclined to think that this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most that I've ever done. Then came the, the repercussion. I felt as if I were a man of snow, or at last, long last, I was beginning to melt. The melting was starting in my back, drip, drip, and presently, trickle, trickle. Finally, the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore the love which will open the high gates to a, to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. He actually describes his conversion as being reluctant. But he, couldn't, he felt like he couldn't do anything else. Like God was drawing him. He just had no other choice. But it wasn't like he was stripped of free will as he was describing. And he finishes with this thought. He says, the phrase, compel them to come, has been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they actually plumb the depth of divine mercy. His compulsion was my liberation. Jonah was in the belly of a great fish. God set him free. And then God came to Jonah and says, Jonah, second time, will you go? God calls us. He doesn't force us. But when we understand... Look, I, I'm going to describe it this way. All evangelism really is, all God has to do to evangelize the world is just, he doesn't have to argue us in. All he has to do is reveal to us his utter beauty. And to the degree that you see that he is far more beautiful, far more satisfying than any other thing that you have ever placed your hands upon in this life, that by the way, is fragile and will someday break. Or, if it doesn't break, you will break. And when you break, you will be separated from it. To the degree that you see the beauty of Jesus. 
we relinquish those things. I want to pray and I want to respond. Because really at the end of the day, what we see in God is a God of great grace, calling us, wooing us, revealing to us the depth of his love. Because at the end of the day, when you see a God who not only is so powerful, but equally matched by way of his love, he loves you. He pursues you, not because he's some creepy God who's taken some sort of weird vested interest in you. But he pursues you because he loves you. You bear his image. You're broken. You have a terminal illness. The Bible describes a sin. And God knows to the degree that you run from him with that illness, he'll die in your sin. Yet in great love, he pursues you to rescue you. To the degree that you see that his love is what motivates all of this. Only then will you lay down your arms. Will you stop running? And will you turn to him? Let's pray. We'll sing. We'll confess. We have some rugs in front. If you just want to get on your face before God, communion in the back. If you're here and you got your kids maybe in the back, you're more than welcome to go bring your kids in here. Invite them to be part of communion together. It's a great opportunity for you dads, by the way, if you want. I'm not trying to force anybody, but just think about it. Like as a dad, you can lead your kids in communion. Show them what Jesus did for them by way of broken bread, poured out blood for us. We'll have some people off to the side that would be happy to pray for you. We pray and sing. Jesus, thank you for the grace. And God, right now we want to surrender our wills. God, truly, just the reality of that phrase, we want to surrender our wills that oftentimes are are platinum. They're unbreakable, unbending. But God, only you can break our wills. Not by force, but by love. God, I pray that we would see you as a good, loving father and turn our hearts to you.